going to invite you to, to meet me in Luke chapter 19. Uh, you guys hear me okay since I took the microphone off? No problem. Okay, awesome. Hey, last week I had um, this, uh, hopefully a little helpful guide to the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus' last week um, entering Jerusalem before uh, the crucifixion on Friday, the resurrection on Sunday. Uh, so I have more copies outside if you need one of those uh, with the specific uh, kind of coordinating passages in Luke as we kind of journey with Jesus through Passion Week. So last Sunday we covered, uh, you know, what's known as Palm Sunday and then we can call it Fig Monday in a way. Uh, although Luke doesn't record the cursing of the fig tree and the explanation of that. Um, although we see Jesus enter Jerusalem and are reminded that he's in control, right? And so he instructs his disciples to go get the colts of a donkey uh, from someone's property. And, um, you know, when he asks, what are you doing with my colts? Say, the Lord needs it. And they did exactly that. They found the donkey exactly as Jesus says. They brought uh, this colt back to Jesus. And Jesus rides royally as king into Jerusalem. And so um, some uh, fulfillment of prophecy there was Zechariah um, with what uh, some kings in the Old Testament did as well. And so they... No palm branches, according to Luke, um, but they laid down their cloaks. And so Jesus uh, rode in to Jerusalem uh, in full royalty. And so the Palm Sunday really becomes a question about, about what kind of Messiah are you going to be? What kind of Messiah are you? And so some people get it and some people don't. Some recognize him as king. They don't have an understanding properly when his kingdom will arrive or how it has arrived. Right? They were expecting... Um, a royal king that would come and get rid of Rome, that would uh, free them from Roman occupation and oppression, uh, who, would, who would kind of clean house politically, uh, not spiritually. And so Jesus came uh, in his own way, uh, as God uh, planned it from the very beginning. He was in control uh, in every part of that. Um, and then where we left off at the end of chapter 19 of Luke, uh, we see that he's teaching in the temple every day. And so today I want to focus on what we know, what we can best guess to be Tuesday and Wednesday of Passion Week. And then next Sunday we'll focus on Thursday and Friday. Thursday is known as Maundy Thursday. We've heard that phrase before. That's uh, the evening uh, before uh, Jesus is led to the cross. And so he, he sits in the, in the upper room with his disciples and they have... Um, communion together, the Last Supper together. So we'll celebrate communion next week, and then we'll look at <coughs> Friday, uh, essentially why we call it good. Bless you. But we left off here uh, in Luke chapter 19. The battle is escalating, and I remember asking a question uh, if we've ever wondered how Jesus could royally enter Jerusalem and be praised and Hosanna and palm branches, and then within five days, the crowd has turned on him so much that they say, free the murderer, Barabbas, and crucify Jesus, right, within five days. And so why is that so? And I think Luke gives us a great glimpse in how this battle is escalating. And so we left off uh, chapter 19 at the end. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Uh, he, some celebrate him, but some don't. Jesus weeps over the city, his own people, who don't realize who he is and why he has come. And so the end of chapter 19, verse 45 when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, 
He said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his very words. And so some people are claiming, the crowds are loving Jesus at this point. The religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus. He's a threat. Unless they're going to free them from Roman occupation, he's a threat to our religious establishment. Um, and they, they want to do without uh, this Christ figure because they're not recognizing who he is. And so we see Jesus is teaching in the temple. That's where he goes, the heart of uh, Jewish, uh, the heart of the Jewish people and the heart of uh, their faith, essentially. Uh, and then that's where Jesus kind of just sits. We, we learn in the text later that he's going every morning back uh, to the temple. And so actually look at um, the end of verse, or the end of chapter 21. We're going to try to cover these two full chapters today, so we're going to take them in chunks. So I have some of the narrative text up on the uh, up in PowerPoint, but not uh, kind of the dialogue in between. And so if you have a Bible, that would be helpful today. But at the end of chapter 21, it kind of bookends this, you know, roughly Monday to Tuesday uh, to, to Wednesday here. It says in verse 37 of chapter 21, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. And so Jesus' focus here is teaching at the temple every day. Right? That's where he's going. That's the heart uh, of Judaism. Uh, that's his, he's going to his own. All right. So in your bulletin, I have this outline that's kind of adapted from this guy, Blake Grandguard. And uh, he, he separates it this way. So we see at the end of chapter 19, Jesus' teaching is arousing great conflict. Right? Crowds are loving it, but then G the religious leaders want to get rid of him. And so we see that same book ended at the end of chapter 21. But this conflict is sort of ceases temporarily. At the start of chapter 22, we see Judas go and make arrangements so that he could betray Jesus. Right? And so that leads us right into uh, the Last Supper on Thursday and uh, Good Friday. So we're going to separate it like this a little bit. The emphasis of the text is conflict. Conflict is building. The battle is escalating. It becomes very clear, very quickly, why they want to kill Jesus. They are not a fan of this guy. He is threatening their very existence, their livelihood, uh, their identity. And so we're going to start with uh, Luke 20. And I think I split up these two chapters into like six Ideas, and instead we're going to spend one morning on them. And so we're going to go through them pretty quickly. Um, but I want to get this idea of conflict building, escalating. Um, and so we'll see that as we go. So chapter 20 of Luke. I'm going to read all the way to verse 19. One day as Jesus was teaching, we think this is Tuesday, one day as Jesus was teaching the people uh, in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Well, they're probably referring to the fact that he just cleared out the temple, right? Why, why would you do that, and who gave you the right to do that, Jesus? Because that would be our right as the religious leaders. Verse 3, he replied, 
I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him then? Verse 6, but if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they don't give him an answer. Verse 7, so they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell a par- uh, the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Essentially, pay rent. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyards and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what's the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. They were were cowards in a way, right? They wanted to protect their own tail. All right, so what's going on here? Right, we have a battle escalating. Jesus is teaching at the temple. Um, The fight's beginning, intensifying. They go and ask Jesus a question, and he turns on them and asks them a question in response. Parenthetically, this is a great, uh, this is probably great advice for Jesus on how to interact with those who don't embrace him about the truth of who he is. How do we evangelize? How do we have conversations about about our faith? I think we ask good questions. I mean, Jesus is brilliant. Hey, instead of me answering that, let me ask you a question uh, instead, because that'll kind of give me the heart of why you're asking me what you're asking me and the heart of your own worldview. But they ask them this question about John the Baptist, and they're trying to pin him in a corner, right? They're trying to trap Jesus because they want to trap him in a way that's going to get him ultimately in trouble, ultimately killed. Right? They want to turn him into the authorities because look at what he said when we asked him this question. And Jesus very uh, brilliantly responds by, hey, will you tell me about John's baptism instead? Was it from heaven or human origin? Right? Was John from God? Was he a prophet? Right? If I'm gonna de- and so they kind of discuss it among themselves. If I'm going to deny that, well, then I'm, then I'm going to deny that God was speaking or God was moving through this guy, John. Well, if I'm going to deny that he is from human origin, um, then we'll get in trouble because everybody loved John. They were convinced he was a prophet. And so Jesus turns their question back on them with a question of his own. Right? They're trying to trip up Jesus, trap him. And Jesus turns it back to them. Ultimately, uh, he's going to continue uh, revealing to us uh, who, he had, who he is as king and what it is to be part of his kingdom. 
And so they can't come up with a good question because they want to save their own tails. And so they're like, well, I, we don't know. And so then Jesus gives this parable about telling us about what's going on. And he gives this parable about an owner of a vineyard who has entrusted that vineyard uh, to these tenants. And when he sends people to go collect fruit of the vineyard or rent, uh, they act pretty harshly, right? And so the owner of this vineyard represents God. The tenants represent these religious leaders. And then God is sending prophets, essentially, uh, to them. And they, kept, they keep rejecting the prophets, rejecting the prophets. Ultimately, the owner of the vineyard, the father figure, is going to send his son, right? Figuratively, Jesus here. And what do they do to him when the owner sends his son whom he loved? Isn't that a phrase we're familiar with? It's a phrase used in his baptism, right? When Jesus comes up out of the water when he's baptized by John. This is my son whom I love. What do they do? They, they want to kill him because he's the heir. Then they can gather all the prophets for themselves. And it's all about them and their status. Uh, right? And so Jesus is giving this story about what's going on right in front of them with the religious leaders. And, uh, and then he says, well, this is why uh, the prophets have said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everybody who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone who, uh, on whom it falls will be crushed. And then verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They were smart too. They're like, oh, he's talking about us, isn't he? But they were afraid of the people. So continuing on, verse 20, they're going to try to trap Jesus again with a question. They're going to get more creative and crafty in doing this. So chapter 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, meaning Jesus, they, meaning the religious leaders, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Luke is a great storyteller, telling us, hinting at some things going on. They weren't sincere, but they were pretending to be sincere as they were spying on Jesus. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said. So that, he might hand, uh, so that they might hand him over to the power and authorities of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what's right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now let me ask this question. Is, do they mean that when they say this? Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Do the spies mean that? They do not. Because they are pretending to be sincere. But are they right in saying that? That's pretty ironic. They're, pretty, they're right. They're right on. They don't mean this, but they nail it. This is what you are doing, Jesus. So, verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? They expected Jesus to come in, the Messiah to come, and wipe out Rome, right? A military... Uh, Messiah, a military king. And so they want to trap him. Well, what's, you know, let's just read it first. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity. Does anybody have a different word for duplicity? Trickery. Trickery. Craftiness. Craftiness, right? Jesus, uh, he's always in control, right? A smart guy. <coughs> Sovereign over all this. So he saw through their craftiness, their trickery, their duplicity. Duplicity is just not a word I usually use every day. 
And Jesus said to them, show me a denarius. So that's kind of their coin. Whose image and description are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what's Caesar and to God what's God's. They were unable to trap him on what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So again, they tried to trap Jesus to trip him up. And they asked him, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus could have just said, hey, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God's what, God what's God's, right? But instead, in an act of brilliance, hey, take out a coin. Well, whose picture is on your coin? Oh, Caesar's picture is on my coin. Right? And, and Jesus just indicted that person, well, just by having, coin, having that coin in your pocket. You have already pledged allegiance to Caesar, haven't you? Right? They wanted to trick him and trap him into, into not honoring Caesar and getting in trouble with Rome, or to not honor God and get in trouble with the religious establishment, right? And what has Jesus said? Hey, show me your coin. Oh, if Caesar's image is on it, you've already uh, given your allegiance to him. Give him what's his. And give to God what's God's. Right? So should you pay your taxes next month? Rianne's not here. I'm safe to say this. Yes. You should. Right? Jesus is hinting on how, as followers of Christ, we can live in a secular society. Right? God has placed uh, authority over us politically. And so when it comes time to tear, pay our tax bill, we should pay it. Right? Should we pay more? You're like, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. <laughs> no, you should not pay more. Should you pay less? No, you should not pay less. Hey, give Uncle Sam, what's Uncle Sam's? And give to God what's God's, right? Whose picture's on your bill? Right, whatever. Depends what bill. Ben Franklin. All right. Does that make sense? Just seeing kind of the over, like, bird's eye view. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to trap him, ultimately, because they do not like him and they want to get rid of him. So let's continue on. Some fun passages ahead. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, Luke is giving us, this is the only time Luke mentions the Sadducees in his narrative, but he's keying in on what differentiates the Sadducees from these other religious leaders, because Sadducees did not believe in resurrection from the dead. So Luke tells us that, reminds us that, in case we did not know. Verse 27, so the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses write, wrote, wrote uh, for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the, women, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. So the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection come to Jesus and ask about the resurrection. That's interesting, right? So they, are they really looking for an answer? Probably not. They're probably trying to trick him and trap him, and they're sent uh, to do that very job, right? Why would they ask about the resurrection from him if they don't believe in it? Kind of interesting. But they give this crazy hypothetical example of husband and wife, without kids, the husband dies. Old Testament law says she remains in the family, so the br a brother would marry her, hopefully have children and kind of 
uh, I don't know, the, the lineage continues. Um, and so hypothetically, in a crazy situation, she's married all seven brothers and never had a kid with any of them. And then she's, she dies, so whose wife will she be in heaven? What do you think without reading ahead? Probably not polygamy in heaven. I'm just going to say that on the out, outright. Okay, I'm trying to trap you as well. So verse 34, Jesus replies, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. For those of you married, I know you love your spouse. I'm going to break your hearts right now and tell you you won't be married in heaven. Because that's what Jesus says. Verse 36. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In the account of of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Okay, a couple things going on here. Jesus is going to say, hey, the resurrection, the the age to come is so much better. It's so different, but it's so much better that some people, like, you know, the greatest thing in my life, you know, I enjoy all sorts of things, right? It's golf season is starting uh, I love food, March Madness, all sorts of things. But Rachel's the best thing in my life. And yet, for eternity, being in the immediate presence with God is going to be so much greater that as much as I love Rachel, it won't matter. We won't be married. She'll be there worshiping Jesus just like I will be worshiping Jesus. And that's enough. So Jesus is emphasizing in the resurrection, it'll be so different but it'll be so much better than anything, any of the joys of this world. Even cumulatively, all the joys of this world. And then he says, hey, you told me an account about the Old Testament, and the Sadducees really kind of forsook, forsake, I don't know, disregarded all the Old Testament except the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right, the Torah. Uh, and so they, they tell Jesus, oh, well, According to the Torah, uh, if husband dies and they're childless, the wife would marry a brother. And so Jesus then uses uh, a story from the Torah and says, Hey, you guys that don't believe in the resurrection, why did Moses refer to dead people if they were still dead? Right? If Moses referred to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those guys are still dead, that means God, God is God of the dead, not the living. And Jesus says, no, he referred to them because they are alive, they are resurrected, they're in the immediate, or they're in the um, intermediate state in terms of uh, waiting for Jesus' return, just like, you know, what we will do when we die, um, to get their resurrected bodies, Uh, but in some way their soul now is in the immediate presence of God worshiping. Question, why does Jesus refer to... Where does it say that? The story about the burning bush. 
Why doesn't Jesus say, hey, in Exodus chapter 3, because they didn't have Exodus chapter 3, right? They just had kind of, the book titles were usually the first word in these books, and so they probably they didn't differentiate, oh, chapter 3, verse 15, says this. No, it was just, hey, here's a story that you know well, you have memorized, and Moses referred to God as the God of the living. Okay, so verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, you probably didn't mean that. Verse 40, no one dared to ask him any more questions, right? They're continuing to try to pin Jesus in a corner to trap him, to trip him up so that he'll say something wrong and indict himself so that they could properly turn him into the authorities, right? So the escalation is building, tension, the conflict is building, and then Jesus kind of turns to his disciples and kind of asks them a question, and the crowds are listening, but instead of being asked a question, Jesus is going to now ask one uh, himself. So verse 30, where are we? Oh, that was the, oh, this is the end. Verse 41, chapter 20. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? So Jesus is going to pose his own question. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, an, uh, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Okay, here's a question Jesus says. How can the Messiah not only be a son of David, but David's Lord? In a, in, a, in a patriarchal society, a son is always lesser than a father. The father is greater. And so in, in whatever ways, is Jesus inferior to David? Because he's a descendant of David, yes. But is he superior to David? Yes, because he is the Messiah. He's not just a son of David, but he's David's God, David's Lord. And so using this question that Jesus poses himself kind of some indirect conflict, uh, if you go by that kind of outline. Verse 45, Jesus is going to point at what's going on and compare the religious leaders uh, to someone we would not expect. So verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in respect, with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show, uh, and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus is saying, hey, look at all these religious leaders. They are not to be emulated. They are not good examples of faith. They are terrible examples of faith, and they will be punished accordingly. Because they're not living by faith, they're living for themselves. But they're not living for God, they're all about what people think of them. Uh, trampling on the disenfranchised, right, for their own gain and their own benefit. Jesus says, hey, not only don't be like them, be like this other person. So chapter 21, verse 1, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put in more than all the others. Literally, has she put in more? No, she's put in two coins. A coin for her would have been, I think, the, I think it's one 130 seconds of a denarius. Now, denarius is a one day's wage, so that's like 
Not much, right? She didn't have much. But Jesus says she's put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Don't be like the religious leaders. Rather, be like this poor widow. She's all in. She's not selfishly pursuing her own gain. She's all in for God. Rather than these religious leaders who are only doing it for a show, only doing it to get a reaction from others, they're, they're padding their pockets anyways. And so comparatively, they're giving, it doesn't count. But this lady is giving all that she has. She's all in. She's recognizing Jesus for who he is. Be like her, not these religious leaders. And so you see how the tension is escalating, right? Conflict makes sense why even by Wednesday they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. They, they're challenging. He's challenging the religious leaders. And as they are trying to trip him up and trap him, he's turning their, their motives on its head and really teaching us about the kingdom, who he is and what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God. And then straight from that, after all this conflict is building, we have this example, don't be like the religious leaders, but be like this poor widow. Jesus is going to talk about future conflict. And let me just read it because it's a lot of fun and we're not going to break it down. We're just going to kind of end with this. This is some crazy. So chaos is coming. Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple, but he's also going to talk about his second coming. And he's weaving that together. And it's really interesting, really hard to figure out. Um, but the gist of it is this. Bad things are coming. So as followers of Christ, we should expect persecution. We should expect suffering. Uh, even family is going to turn upon family. So let me just read this. Chapter 21, verse 5. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So how great the temple is, they're saying. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when no one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign for for, uh, that they were are about to take place. Verse 8, he, he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and place you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and on account of my name. And, you will, uh, and so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed by even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will be put uh, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. But let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out 
and let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This sounds great, doesn't it? Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up to lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable: Look at the fig tree and all the tree. Uh, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near, right? So we look at the, the blossoms on the tree, we know summer's coming. Just like we see signs that Jesus is giving us, we know the end is near. Verse 32, truly I tell, he's, he's kind of summarizing it here, verse 32 and 33. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And here's some application to takeaways from Jesus, verse 34. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. So be careful. Don't let your hearts be heavy. Don't get trapped. Verse 35. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So what's going on here? This is kind of, Luke 21 is famous for, right, is Jesus predicting, giving us signs for, you know, for us keeping track of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and these natural disasters that are, was the end near? I'm not sure he's trying to scare us into that, uh, but he's telling us to be watchful. So that when this happens, it's going to be obvious and you're going to be ready. You're going to be prepared. Your hearts will be heavy because I'll be with you. I'll give you words to say. Right? People are going to turn on you, even your own family. You'll be persecuted. You'll suffer, suffer greatly. You could even be murdered. But don't lose heart, Jesus is saying, because this is all part of my plan. I'm always in control. More important is the age to come. The resurrection that he's already talked about. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And so quite literally, he's talking about the, the um, destruction of the temple, which happened in about the year 70 AD. And so these events, and you know, Jesus is saying these approximately the year 30, uh, roughly. Luke is writing these in the 50s, and, and Jesus is talking about an event in, in terms of the destruction of the temple that's going to happen in the year 70. So he's intertwining with this prophecy about the destruction of the temple, the very heart of Judaism, with his second coming and saying, hey, it's just like that. You're going to have to endure the destruction of the temple. It's going to be awful. Chaos is coming your way. Don't lose heart. And he's using that analogy of what happens in AD 70 to what happens even in our future. When Jesus comes back um, as Messiah and he will rule and reign, uh, 
uh, and make all things right. And so he's just encouraging us to be careful. Don't let your hearts be weighed down. Don't be trapped. Be always on the watch and pray about all these things. Pray that you may be able to stand before God, ready, prepared, that you know him, he knows you. Your security is in him, not in the things of this world. And so just on the heels of that, kind of bookends this whole section, chapter 21, verse 37. We read this earlier. Again, reminded that each day Jesus was teaching in the temple. Each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Chapter 22, this is what's known, we kind of, scholars call it Silent Wednesday. There's not really anything that happens on Wednesday other than Judas is coming to start preparations for his betrayal of Jesus. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Right? Luke has told us that like 15 times already. Right, just reminding us, the conflict has built, the escalation is rising, they want to get rid of him. Verse, thir- verse 3, then Satan enters Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Well, how would he know how that would be or when there'd be no crowd? Well, Judas is part of the inner ring, the inner circle of disciples, knows that Jesus is teaching every day and then escaping to the Mount of Olives every night, right? So Judas knows exactly where Jesus is going to be. And so uh, for his own wealth and his own, to save his own tail uh, and not just be a traitor but a coward, he's going to agree uh, in exchange for money, to give the religious authorities the time and place and opportunity to trap Jesus physically. And that's exactly what they do as we lead into uh, Thursday and Friday of Passion Week, which we'll pick up next week. Thanks for hanging with me through lots of texts, lots of some crazy ideas, but the big idea being just conflict is it's rising, escalation, Uh, There's tension. Uh, They really want to get rid of Jesus and the interactions they have with Jesus trying to trap him. He turns it back on them. They're all the more upset and um, they want want this week to be over. Uh, In in their mind, Friday night is going to be over. In our minds, we know that Friday night is not the end. And so let's pray. God, thanks for, oh, just um, having the ability through uh, your inspired, inspired author Luke to journey with Jesus through this last week. Uh, as one scholar puts it, the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. And so what an honor to be able to just look at the days of the week uh, as Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, and prepares uh, to pay the ultimate price to give himself uh, the Passover lamb, the pure spotless lamb who shed his blood so that our sins could be atoned for, so that we could be restored into a right relationship with God, forgiven and redeemed, restored, um, given peace, declared righteous. And so thanks for Jesus doing what only he could do. Thanks for sending your son. Would we be watchful 
Would we continually pray and be ready, knowing that days are hard, things are going to get worse, but it's so worth following Jesus in this life and ultimately in the life to come. And so we look forward with eager expectation of that day when you will come back or that we will be in your immediate presence, whichever comes first. So we praise you for who you are and what you've done. Praise Jesus, our Lord. Amen.